really, really honored to be here giving my very first public lecture about uh, this new book. So I'm uh, looking forward to the conversation. I'm gonna keep my um, remarks uh, quite brief. Um, I'm gonna try to stay under 30 minutes if I can, maybe even a bit less than that, uh, because I'm a big fan of uh, audience Q&A and just keeping the conversation natural and free flowing. And I think especially these days with Zoom, that's, uh, that's pretty important. Um, so uh, obviously this is a huge topic, uh, the history of US-Iran uh, relations. Uh, it's a topic a lot of people have very strong feelings about. Uh, and, you know, as I try to say in the book, um, I think it's unfortunate that often uh, history, uh, but especially the history of US-Iran relations tends to be weaponized or used as a sort of tool of conflict, uh, uh, which is, I think is actually really unfortunate and actually betrays a bit of a misunderstanding of how rich and interesting this history is. Uh, this is not just a history about 1979 and 1953. It tends to be that when you talk about the history of US-Iran relations, those are the two dates that people immediately bring to mind, right? And a lot of the reason people do is because that has to do with who you want to sort of blame. Uh, there's a, uh, you know, I think everyone who knows about anything about the history of these countries knows that obviously they're in a very uh, difficult place right now, uh, a place of great antagonism. So it's natural to say, well, where did this all go wrong? Whose fault is it? Why did we end up in the situation that we're in? I wanna take us away from that if we can with this book and, and with the time that we have together here today, because I think that is a tragic way to look at history. Uh, history is not a competitive sport. It's not a courtroom. Uh, obviously, for those of you who are perhaps less initiated to this, uh, to this particular history, I mean, I'll just remind you that in 1979, uh, the revolutionary uh, authorities and students and, you know, with the support of the revolutionary authorities in Iran took over 50 American hostages in their own embassy uh, and held them for over a year. It was a very dramatic hostage crisis in the United States. And that tends to be where many Americans, particularly of a certain generation, began to conceive and conceptualize of Iran and Iran's history with the U.S. And of course, many Iran for many Iranians, 1953, uh, was that pivotal year in which the CIA uh, gave its backing to uh, a coup d'etat that overthrew a very popular prime minister in Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, uh, and began this kind of resentment uh, of American foreign policy and of the Shah among, particularly among kind of educated liberal middle classes in Iran, uh, that famously led to the, in many ways to the backlash of the 1979 uh, revolution. I want us to step away from all of that. Uh, because, you know, when I started to get into this book and started doing the research for this book so many years ago, I was interested in those things, yes, but in the deeper history. Um, I think we can all understand that when we come to this subject, there is, as I said, a desire to say, well, where did it go wrong? How did it go wrong? Whose fault is it? I think there's an inherent question in, embedded within that question, which is that if it all went so wrong, perhaps at some point it went right, right? Um, I mean, inherently, if things fell apart, if, if you know, enmity and hostility uh, arose, uh, so there must have been some point at which things weren't, perhaps weren't so bad. And that's a question that I think we never ask when we talk about US-Iran relations. If it all, you know, if we're so fixated with asking historians to tell us, you know, why it went wrong, why it went badly, that we don't ask, well, how did it go right in the first place? Did it go right in the first place? Was there a sort of golden age of US-Iran relations? The short answer? Uh, for those of you who have short attention spans is yes and no. Um, I think you can say that there was in some ways a period 
particularly in the early 20th century, around from around maybe 1911 to 1935 or so, 1940, uh, that you could almost, if you really were looking for a golden age of US-Iran relations, you could find that. And that's quite interesting in its own way. Uh, those of you who know this history, I mean, it's striking that in the summer of 1951 uh, and 52, uh, as communists and nationalists and liberals and so on were getting into fights with one another on the streets of Tehran uh, during the oil nationalization crisis. Um, the old Presbyterian missionary Samuel Jordan uh, died uh, and the city of Tehran came to a standstill uh, for his funeral as thousands of people marched through the streets. Uh, this was a beloved figure uh, in Iran, a sort of a Presbyterian missionary who had presided over the Alborz school uh, for many, many years, uh, for almost 40 years. That was just a year or two before 1953. As late as that point, America was still seen in this very, very positive light uh, in Iran, right? Um, so where does that come from? Where does that begin? How far back do you have to go to figure out how things went right? That's what I'm interested in. And that's what I was interested in this book. And I, and I made a decision early on that I think may be seen as strange or perhaps even eccentric, which was not to just go back to the beginning of political relations, because you could do that. You could go to 18, the 1880s, the first time the two countries started exchanging um, diplomats. You could go to the 1850s when the two countries first uh, signed a treaty of friendship with each other. You could go to the 1830s when the first American Presbyterian missionaries started coming to Iran. But I wanted to go back even further than that, uh, which was to go back into the 18th century, into the 1720s. That's fully 100 years at least before any Iranians and Americans had any actual contact with each other. Why would you go back that far? Well, because I really do believe that when you, when you really start trying to start with the beginning, you want to ask each other, you want to ask yourself, not just how did these two countries come to interact, but what preconceived notions did they have of each other before they even interacted? What baggage were they bringing to the table before they even met each other? Um, I think that's just as interesting as what actually happens when you meet uh, you know, each other, right? So very, very briefly, and I know this may seem strange. Well, you know, why do, why do we need to talk about the 1720s? Well, I think there's some really good reasons and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you what they are and you can uh, let me know what you think in the, in the Q and A. Um, what probably the, the biggest, the thing that, that blew my mind the most when I started doing the research for this book, you know, I was looking for references to Persia as they would have called it at the time in early American newspapers of the 1700s. And the very, very first newspapers that were published in uh, North America, wasn't the US yet, in North America in Philadelphia in Boston in the 17, were, were published from around 1719, 17, early 1720s. <clears throat> Before then, there were almost no newspapers in, in North America uh, on a regular basis. It blew my mind to look at the very first newspapers ever published in North America and find that they were obsessed with Iran. That 20 to 30% sometimes of the content of each week's newspaper was about Iran in 1720s. I, I mean, I, you know, I hadn't expected that. I imagine most of you aren't expecting that or wouldn't have expected me to say that. So why was that the case? Well, to some extent, it was just sort of a coincidence because when the, these newspapers were being published, there was a big, there were big things happening in Iran. Uh, Iran happened to be the big international news story of its day because in 1722, uh, there had been a, a, a large-scale rebellion in the eastern portions of the Persian Empire, led by the Afghans under Mahmoud Hotaki, 
uh, which brought down the Safavid Empire in 1722. Uh, and they sacked Isfahan and they destroyed it and they besieged it and they starved its residents to death. It's very dramatic. So this was the big news story of the day. And American newspapers were very, very interested in this. But what was really striking was that they were, and get ready for this, they were overwhelmingly, vocally pro-Iranian. So exactly 300 years ago, the American press was not just obsessed with Iran, but it was overwhelmingly pro-Iranian and one-sided in the way they, co they covered this conflict, right? It's very hard for us to imagine that perhaps uh, uh, these days, but why? Well, there are several reasons. One, um, and this was, you know, <laughs> won't surprise, maybe come as a surprise, they completely misread and misunderstood the situation. Uh, so this is a long-standing tradition in the American media, actually, that begins from the very, very beginning, uh, taking sides and oversimplifying a conflict in the Middle East and without really understanding it. Basically, they assumed that because the Afghans were Sunni Muslims and they were rebelling against the Shia uh, Persian Empire, which was forcing them to convert from Sunni to Shia Islam, that they must have been somehow colluding or secretly supported by the Ottoman Empire which as you may know, was the dominant Muslim uh, power of its day. Uh, it was a Sunni uh, uh, empire. It was by far uh, you know, among the most, if not the most pow militarily powerful empire of its day. Remember that in 1722, this was only 40 years after the Ottoman empire had come to the gates of Vienna, right? It was still seen as a threat to European Christendom. So Americans, colonial white, white colonial Americans in the 1720s in Philadelphia and Boston would have seen themselves as virtuous Christians and as citizens uh, or subjects of the British empire. Uh, and so of course they would have seen the Ottoman empire as the great threat of its day, the evil empire of its day. There was lots of references to what they called the terrible Turk, the evil Turk, the barbarous Turk, all this kind of stuff. So there was this natural assumption, and it reminds me sometimes of the way we portray Russia today in our media. There was this assumption that if anything bad was happening anywhere in the world, it had to be because of the Ottoman Empire. The Sultan had to be behind it somehow. So if these Afghan Sunni were rebelling against the, the Shia Persian Empire, they must have been doing it with the support of the Ottomans. Well, guess what? That was wrong. They weren't. That was a misreading of the situation. But even that assumption is interesting. And you look at the newspapers, and there is this overwhelming pro-Shah, pro-Iranian discourse that talks about the evil usurper Mahmoud Hotaki and his and his accomplices in the in you know in Constantinople and so on. Uh, they there's a religious dimension to it as well, which is that because the Shia were seen as somehow unorthodox and heretic by the dominant Sunni Muslims of the day, the Americans liked this. They said, oh, this is good. This, these people are somehow not real Muslims. They're somehow less Muslim and therefore less evil than the Ottomans and less of a threat. It was the classic, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But then there was also this idea that, okay, if they're like, if, if the mainstream Muslim world sees these guys as somehow not quite, not quite right, then hey, we like that about them. Um, so this was the way they looked at it. They, you even, I've even come across newspapers that describe this rivalry between the Ottoman and Persian empires as a rivalry between, quote, Muslims and Persians. Muslims and, which is such an interesting way of framing it, right? As if Persians are not Muslims. There were the newspapers were trying to explain to their readers the difference between Shia and Sunni Islam. Not very well, but in kind of, the fact that they, they were even doing it in the 1720s is interesting. 
Now, why am I going on and on about this? I mean, there are many, you know, I could, I could go on much longer, but the, but the point is that this is the mentality with which Americans came into their understanding of Iran before any real contact. And this had been inherited by the British in many ways. If you look at Shakespeare, if you look at a lot of the literature of the day, you know, there's all this stuff about the terrible Turk, but the, the, the grand Sophie in Iran and so on, they really idealized the Persians. There's one other dimension to it, which is that the majority of, especially in New England, the Puritan Christians had a very literalistic reading of the Bible. To them, now this is hard for us to understand, but if you don't know anything about the contemporary Middle East in the 1720s, where are you gonna look for information? The Bible. The Bible was like a reference book for Puritans, right? This is the Calvinist tradition of taking, taking what's in the Bible very literally. Well, those of you know, who know the Bible, how does Iran look in the Bible, right? It comes out looking really, really good, right? Especially in the Old Testament. Ezra, book one, right? Cyrus liberates the Jews from the Babylonian captivity. So these millenarian Christians, they love that. Uh, the three wise men, the Magi. What, is a, what, are, what are Magi? Magi is plural of Magus, right? Magus, for those of you who are Persian speakers, that is a Mog, right? That is a Zoroastrian priest. The three wise men from the East, they were probably Iranian, right? So this is, you know, these are the, the very positive ways in which um, Iran is portrayed in the Bible. The Ottoman Empire, of course, hadn't, didn't exist and it hadn't been, it wasn't portrayed in the Bible, but they saw the Ottomans as the heir of Babylon. So they hated Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar and all this kind of stuff. In, as, as if all of that wasn't enough, the Ottomans are also in possession of the Holy Land, of Jerusalem, of the places where Jesus walked, right? Iran, the Persian Empire, begins just to the east of the very last major places of biblical importance. So my opening chapter of the book is called East of Eden, because it is to them, it, to the colonial Americans of the 1720s, Iran, the Persian Empire, was like this idyllic fairy tale land that was just to the east of everything that upset them. The Ottoman Empire upset them. It upset them politically, religiously, because it was in occupation of the Holy Land, because of the Crusades, because of this whole history. But the Persian Empire was just to the east of all of that. They even believed that literally, that the last, the easternmost biblical site was the Garden of Eden. They believed the Garden of Eden was somewhere around Mosul. So they believe that, that that is literally where the, the border was between the Ottoman and Persian Empire. So they believe that you cross over the Zagros Mountains and you arrive at this idyllic fairy tale paradise that is not a threat. It's no threat to Christianity. It's no threat to Europe. It's no threat to anything. And it's a little bit less Muslim, which is even better, right? This was the mentality though, the mentalité, if you want to call it that, that the Americans brought with them. The very first, why am I going on about this so long? The very first American who, um, Presbyterian missionary who landed in Iran, who, as he came over the mountains of Zagros, Justin Perkins in 1834, he wrote in his book, the way he described the Salmas Plain around Urumia in Northwest Iran, the word he used was Edenic, Edenic, right? It reminded him of the Garden of Eden, of a paradise. This is the baggage. This is the East of Eden approach that Americans brought. This idea that this was a, a more benign and benevolent version of the Muslim world, of the Ottoman Empire. Now, Americans, or excuse me, I should say Iranians had their own version of this, a sort of West of Eden, if you like, right? 
But that didn't come till a bit later, right? So in this period, in the 18th century, early 19th century, Iranians weren't paying that much attention to North America. They didn't know that much about it. The Yengidonia, it was this kind of wild land, whatever. But about 100 years later, in the, late, in the mid to late uh, Qajar era, around the 1860s, especially 1850s, 1860s, as the Qajar state in Iran begins to want to reform itself and it's weakening and it's feeling attacked by the Russians and the British, and it, it, it's feeling like it's really suffering from a lot of interference from, from Russia and from Britain uh, in its affairs. This is the moment at which Iran begins to look to the US as a more, guess what, as a more benevolent version of Europe. And I think there is a fascinating parallel there, right? It is almost exactly like the way the, the, the colonial Americans of a century earlier were looking at the Persian Empire. When, when Iranians of the mid 19th century of the 1850s, 60s, 70s, when they looked at Europe, they saw imperialism and greed and exploitation, now, rightly or wrongly, you know, but they had suffered at the hands of things like the Treaty of Turkmenichai uh, and the capitulations and the lopsided trading agreements and all the rest of it, which we, many of you will already know about. But when they looked at America, they saw a land that a couple of generations earlier had overthrown the British Empire in a revolution. They saw American Presbyterian missionaries who had arrived in Iran and were building schools and clinics, but had no interference or help from their government. The US had not yet set up an embassy. It hadn't, set, hadn't sent diplomats. From the 1830s, 40s, 50s, Americans were working in Iran in large numbers, building schools and clinics, but their government was completely uninvolved, right? So from the Iranian perspective, this was like a more idealized, more idyllic version of Europe. When Amir Kabir, the famous reformist prime minister of the 1850s, when he, when he was thinking about re reforming Iran, he wanted to, he knew that Iran had to learn from the West in some ways, in terms of its, the West's economic and technological progress. But it, it, there was this feeling that like, we don't wanna learn from, from Britain and Russia and France because they just wanna exploit us. So, but we still, we, we still admire the West. So the US became the perfect solution. It was like, here's a country that is progressing economically, militarily, you know, politically, but they don't seem to have this imperialistic mindset. It was like a better version of the West just like Iran was like a better version of the East for America. This is not, I know I've talked for a long time and I'll try to wrap up in a few minutes, but I know we've talked a lot about the beginning of this, but notice we haven't even got to the beginning of actual relations yet. And that's why I don't think it's such an eccentric choice to start with preconceived notions, because I would argue that those will stay with us right up until 1979. You look at the way the discourse in both the US and Iran in the 1970s, and in some ways, it, it, it's still stuck in that, <laughs> you, know, you know, I was looking recently at that uh, Orson Welles narrated film about the Persepolis celebrations of 1971, right? Oh, you know, the flame of Persia, it's called, you know, all this. It's such an idealized fantasy idea, because in the 1970s, when Americans looked at the Middle East, they looked at the Arab states, they looked at socialism, they looked at these Arab-Israeli conflicts, they looked at a lot of what they saw, a lot of anti-Americanism and radicalism and sort of, you know, things they didn't like. But when they looked at Iran, they saw this Shah and this Oriental kingdom that was kind of idyllic and a fairyland that seemed to be very pro-American. 
you know, it's like you could have almost been in 1720 in terms of the rhetoric and the discourse. It was that stagnant in some ways. I don't want to use that word, but you know, you look at the films like Haji Baba of the 1950s and so on. I mean, it's just this, this constant discourse. And the same thing in Iran, right? Less so by the 1970s. After Vietnam, I think things changed a bit, but as late as the 1940s, there is a institutional desire on the part of the Iranian state at all levels to want to cultivate a better relationship with the United States because they don't, they think America is going to be more benevolent than Britain and Soviet Union at the time were. Um, and Mossadegh is probably one of the few exceptions to this because, but, but most of the Iranian political class in the 1920s, they, they really wanted a close, 20s, 30s, 40s, they really wanted a close relationship with the United States. How does this begin politically? So I've talked about missionaries and ideology and culture. You notice it when, they, when the two countries start to develop their first political ties. The very first disagreement that Iran and the United States had, you know what that was? The very first disagreement they had came in the 1850s. And what was it about? It was about the first treaty they were trying to sign. In 1851, the two countries negotiated a, what they called the Treaty of Friendship, Commerce, and Navigation. It took five years for it to be finalized and signed and ratified by both countries. It's almost like the JCPOA, it was almost like the nuclear deal. It took five years to negotiate. You can't believe, why, why would the US and Iran be, have, have such a difficult <laughs> disagreement that takes five years to iron out in the 1850s? Well, guess what? Here's, there were a number of sticking points. Uh, one was that the US actually wanted some of the same capitulations agreements that the, that the Iran had given to European powers. But one of the interesting sticking points was that Iran wanted a US or an alliance with the US that it could show off to Britain and Russia to say, hey, we have a new third power that we can, we can use against you. The Iranians actually, the Shah and the Iranians actually requested US protection in the Persian Gulf against British shipping. The Shah actually requested the stars and stripes to fly from, from Iranian merchant shipping in the Persian Gulf. He wanted to buy American warships manned with, Amer by, with American sailors and soldiers, flying the stars and stripes. And the US, very isolationist power at the time, said, no way, we don't want to get into entangling alliances. No way, no way, no. There's no way we can do this. This is what they were arguing about. This was the first argument that Iran and the US ever had. Iran wanting the US more involved in its affairs and the US saying, no, we want to leave you alone. It is inconceivable to us <laughs> sitting here 170 years later that this is how the this is how relations between the two countries began, right? So how do we get from there to here, right? Obviously I could talk a lot about that, but I think that's history that's much more familiar to a lot of you probably. But what's interesting to me is this is where we start from, right? This idealized, almost fantasy idea that these two countries had of each other. Um, you know, this, this US policy that was very hands-off and this Iranian desire to want to get the US more sucked into their affairs. It wasn't just the 1850s, it was almost a century, right up until the 1940s, every single Iranian government, regardless of its position or political uh, ideology, wanted a closer relationship with the United States. They felt it was strategically important to Iranian foreign policy. And that's why I started the book where I did, because the vast majority of books written about the history of US-Iran relations up till now start somewhere around 1940 with the first uh, advisory missions. 
Why did they do that? I get it. Because before 1940, before 1941, before Pearl Harbor, the US is an isolationist power. It has zero interest in Iran. Iran, it could be Antarctica for all they, for all they care. And it's not just Iran, like anything that's not an immediate strategic interest, US is not interested. So I think a lot of American historians, especially using American sources and American archives have decided that, oh, because the US was not interested in Iran before 1940, therefore the history of US-Iran relations doesn't even really begin until 1940. Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? I think that's a pretty problematic way of looking at history that somehow the history of US-Iran relations only becomes important when the United States becomes interested. What that leaves out is that for 90 years before that, Iran was very, very interested in getting in, in the United States. And that is a critical part of the story. Uh, and that's what I wanted to bring out as well. And obviously we don't have time to, to really get into all of that, but I, I you know, outlined that quite a bit in the book and it's some fascinating history. I think that, you know, um, I know most people are very interested in the more recent history and I'm happy to talk about that in the Q and A. Um, but I think that early history tells us so much about where all of this began, because for the vast majority of these two countries' relationships, relationship, it has not been antagonistic. It has been anything but antagonistic. It has been a story of mutual admiration, mutual fascination, and even mutual idealization. The last 40 years, I don't want to say it's been an aberration, but it does not characterize the vast overall history of US-Iran relations. I believe that when you look at that, you come away with a much, much more positive idea about what has happened over the years. And even if this is not too idealistic, a much, much more positive idea about what is possible, about what is possible. So I'll stop there and I'm happy to take uh, whatever questions uh, people have. Thank you so much. I want to read a comment from a viewer who said, I just wanted to say thank you for starting to explain all of this. I can't wait to read your book. Very interesting history. And then a question from another viewer. That must be my mother. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> a question from another viewer. What are the main lessons you hope the Biden administration takes from the history of Iran-US relations as they head into discussions regarding the Iran nuclear deal? And then the second part to that question, what are the main misconceptions about Iran you see in contemporary US reporting on the country? Uh, yes, uh, so thank you, Emily, for that question. Um, I think that uh, the main lessons that I hope the Biden administration takes um, are really pretty much what I was just talking about, which is um, to kind of, I, I actually think that, you know, there's such a, look, I know everyone wants to talk about Biden and the nuclear deal, and that's fine. We can just get straight into that. Look, I think that uh, these are two administrations, the outgoing Rouhani administration in Iran and the incoming Biden administration. These are two administrations that have both worked very hard on the nuclear deal. They know it's technical details. They could talk about it for hours. They could much, much more skillfully than I could. And I actually think they both are very committed to perhaps resurrecting the deal if they can in some ways. Um, but I think that if I, as a historian, I, I don't have a, you know, I wouldn't want to tell them how to do their job. But I think that as a historian where I can perhaps offer a suggestion is that they actually, go, they go back to the first, to, to instead of looking at the most recent disagreements about centrifuges and, uh, and ballistic missiles, they go back to the first disagreement they ever had, the one I just outlined, um, and maybe absorb something of its spirit. You know, the fact that US foreign policy before the Cold War was so invested in the idea of not interfering with Iranian affairs, the fact that Iranian foreign policy was so invested in the idea of seeking US protection, uh, you know, that may, 
the idea of seeking U.S. protection is so anathema to anything that the Islamic Republic feels today, of course. But let's just think, let's just think, try on a thought experiment for a moment. Israel and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states have recently created this kind of uh, <laughs> unexpected kind of pact of convenience among themselves. And the elephant in the room, I mean, obviously, the, you know, is that this has to do with isolating Iran, right? That's very different from the way that Russia and Britain were approaching Iran in the 19th century. But in some ways, there's a parallel there. Iran sought American protection against Britain and Russia and the way they were closing ranks against Iran in the 19th century. Wow, wouldn't it be incredible for Iranian foreign policy these days to suddenly to surprise the hell out of everybody uh, in the Middle East, the Israelis, the, the Gulf Arab states and everybody else by suddenly pulling out this kind of closer and better relationship with the United States uh, in, <laughs> in the way that they were trying to do back in the 1850s. Conversely, wouldn't it be crazy for the United States to suddenly surprise everyone and completely neutralize the rhetoric of the Islamic Republic by saying, hey, you know what? We are truly not gonna interfere in your affairs. We're not gonna talk about regime change. We're gonna respect the, you know, your, you know, your right to run your country the way you want and all the rest of it. Um, that would make it very hard for Iran to accuse the US of this kind of imperial hubris and arrogance and all the rest of it. So I'm not naively saying, let's suddenly go back to 1850. But I do think that if both countries drew something of a lesson from those days, um, you know, it could be interesting for them to think about the world that could be possible uh, after, you know, um, after they actually hammer out some of these other disagreements. Oh, and I guess, what was the second part of that question? It was, um, it was an interesting question. Uh, uh, what are oh, the, the main misconceptions. Um, very briefly, I'll say, look, uh, there are a lot we could say about that, but um, we're well, getting straight to the tough stuff. Um, look, I think that, and I say this with no illusions about the Islamic Republic, with, with no special love for it. Um, I think that the that we uh, one of the greatest uh, mis there are a lot of misunderstandings, but misconceptions. One of them is that there is a relative, and God help me, I'm stressing the word relative <laughs> degree of political legitimacy to the Islamic Republic, whether we like that or not. Um, you know, and I think that. Uh, dealing with it as a complete monster and a pariah state and a demon and all that kind of stuff doesn't help anything. It doesn't help the American public understand it. Uh, and it doesn't help American policymakers to know how to deal with Iran. Iran has some genuine um, foreign policy priorities in the region. It has some genuine concerns. And, you know, we don't have to like the Islamic Republic to recognize that some of those concerns are legitimate and they would be the same concerns that it would have if it was a pro-American uh, regime. And, you know, I think we have to be honest about that. Uh, and then I think the other misconception is this idea, one of the biggest misconceptions is the idea that the Islamic Republic is somehow on the verge of collapse. We, some of us here may want that to be the case, but that is simply not the case. And we've been and sitting there for 40 years waiting for it to collapse is not a, a very sensible uh, foreign policy. Um, so I think those are, you know, some of the the main misconceptions, um, you know, also the idea that, um, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that because I know there are a lot of other questions. But. Thank you. One viewer writes, it seems that the idealistic characterization of each side by the other is still prevalent between the people, though not between the governments. Do you agree? Yes and no, uh, among some people. Uh, I think that uh, the more, uh, oversimplification, but I think the more likely 
you are to be frustrated with in Iran to be frustrated with the government and to be opposed to the Islamic Republic, the more likely you are to have a very rosy picture of Americans. And uh, same thing here. I think the more critical you are of American foreign policy uh, and the more progressive you are, the more likely you are to have positive, warm feelings about Iranians. The more likely you are to know Iranians, probably, frankly, because you probably live in a city where you know Iranians and you have friends and you eat their food and you listen to their music and all the rest. Of it. But I, have, I think that that's wonderful and that's important, but I, that, and that only gets us so far. I think where it's really difficult is to recognize that, you know, whether you like it or not, this is the government you have, both in Tehran and in Washington. And this is what you're going to have to deal with. So people to people exchanges are very, very important, but uh, I think they only get us so far. Thank you. How is the current Iranian Iranian government's antipathy of and threats to Israel informed by Persia slash Iran's historical positive connection to that land and people? That's a very interesting question. Um, how is it? Can, how is the current antagonism connected to this? That's a fascinating question and one I could spend a lot of time on uh, <clears throat> and I'm not an expert on. Um, yes, obviously Iran before the revolution had a sort of tacit understanding with Israel, a sort of uh, informal relationship. Um, and of course, Iran remains to this day, the, the, the country outside Israel, the, the country in the Middle East with the largest Jewish population. Um, and it's complex. Uh, and the official rhetoric of the Islamic Republic is, is claims to be anti-Zionist rather than anti-Semitic. And of course, that's those are things that people can debate and have disagreements about. Um, um, I think in many ways it's tactical as much as it is ideological. I think, of course, you have an idea. I think one of the things that Iran and the US have in common is that these are both very ideological countries in a lot of ways, countries that see themselves as exceptionalist and special uh, historically. <clears throat> but I also think some of that, we need to separate that from practicalities of policy making. Both countries also are concerned with their interests. And I think that when Iran takes a very strong anti-Israeli line, um, to some extent that is motivated by religious ideology uh, and, and, and Jerusalem and all the rest of it. But some of it is also very tactical. It knows that it is able to win over public opinion in, the, in a lot of the Arab countries, particularly in countries that have uh, friendly relationships with Israel. Uh, Iran knows that it buys it a lot of soft power uh, when it is able to criticize some of those governments for their relationships with Israel. Thank you. There are two questions about Howard Baskerville. One viewer writes, I'd like to learn more about him and his involvement in Mashrute movements in the early 1900s. Was he a true freedom fighter or religious activist? And another viewer writes, can you touch upon his role in 1906? He is memorialized in a museum in Tabriz. Yes, uh, which I've been to and it's fascinating. And I, uh, if I thought of it, I would have shared my pictures of that, but you can probably find them on the internet as well. Um, Fascinating figure, for those of you who don't know, in 1909, a young 21-year-old, uh, 23-year-old, I think 21, someone can correct, fact check me on that, I forget, a uh, young American missionary named Howard Baskerville, Princeton graduate, went over to Iran uh, and gave up his life. He was killed in the Constitutional Revolution. He was a passionate believer in it. Yes, I think he was very, very much to his very core. It was very sincere. He really he got inspired by the Constitutional Revolution, which was against the autocracy. Uh, of the monarchy at the time, uh, and he rallied his his students, his uh, school, his pupils at the school that he was teaching at. Uh, despite having no military background whatsoever, he drilled them and in firearms and went off to fight against the Shah's army, and was killed. Um, and I've been to the very spot where he where he died actually outside in the uh, Taramalik Gardens just out uh, outside Tabriz. 
uh, and I've seen his grave and all the rest of it. Uh, and yes, there is a bust of him in the Museum of the Mashrute, the Museum of the Constitutional Revolution in Tabriz. He is described as a shaheed, as a martyr, uh, which is the noblest term that Islam has for anyone who gave his life for the, for, for the country, which is not what you'd expect. You don't expect to go to Iran and go to a museum that has a, a, a bust uh, of an American shaheed. Um, uh, he's a fascinating figure. We could talk a lot about him. I, I unfortunately have to cut a lot of that out of the book. Uh, so there's only a couple of paragraphs on him, but I know that there are other people who are also working on that. Thank you. Doesn't the idea of rapprochement with the U.S. conflict with the urge of keeping America as an enemy for the Iranian religious establishment's internal political needs? And a similar question, in your opinion, to what extent does the survival of the IRI depend on U.S.-Iran relations? Oh, those are great questions. And, and, you know, briefly, the answer is yes. I mean, of course, uh, you know, the Islamic Republic's political legitimacy many in many ways does rest on continued antagonism to the United States. I believe, and not everyone will agree with me on this, but I do believe that um, it doesn't have to be that way, that that has become a, let's put it this way, I think the United States has made that very easy uh, for Iran, especially in the last 20 to 30 years. I think that in the 1980s, Iran's revolution was genuinely in its kind of emotional post-revolutionary phase, and it was very, very difficult to achieve any kind of rapprochement with Iran. But I think in the night since the 1990s, there have been there has been a genuine willingness uh, on the part of the Islamic Republic to explore other postures vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States. And I think in many cases, the U.S. has shot itself in the foot again and again and again uh, by taking a more ideological approach than uh, than you know I think is in America's interests. Um, you know I don't know uh, what could have happened. Uh, we you know counterfactual history if you know uh, things had looked a bit different, but. You know, I think that, uh, yeah, this, of course, is a two-sided story. And I think that, um, you know, Iran's anti-American, if you follow the rhetoric closely, it fluctuates from time to time. Um, and even recently, in the last couple of weeks, we've heard noises coming out of Iran, you know, saying, well, you know, we don't have a, I forget the exact phrasing, but, you know, we don't have a problem with the U.S. necessarily, you know, uh, we're willing to consider that this was a bit of a blip, this, this Trump era, you know, we're give, willing to give the new administration a chance, you know, those, those kinds of, um, of comments. So, you know, we'll see. Thank you. You mentioned how the archival basis for much of the um, historical writing on U.S.-Iranian relations has tended to obscure how these relations took shape over the long durée. This viewer is wondering if you could speak a little bit about the kind of primary sources you explored to help address this problematic periodization. And on a related note, perhaps offer an example of a document, letter, or memoir that particularly surprised or intrigued you in the course of your research. And they add, thank you, and I greatly look forward to reading the book when it arrives on my Kindle next week. Yes, uh, so the question of primary sources is really interesting. Um, it was really important to me that I try to tell this story in the most impartial way I possibly could. Um, I, I know that's probably impossible, <laughs> but you know, I tried. And what I really wanted to do was to not just use American sources or just, you know, obviously I'm, I'm American and I'm based in the US. Uh, most American scholars have not been able to access Iranian sources and that, that I think inevitably colors the way we look at things. Uh, and that's true also for Iranian scholars working in Iran uh, who are not able to access, not able to come here and access American documents. Um, 
And obviously working within a political system that also constrains to some extent uh, the way that they can interpret history. Um, I was in a unique position, which is that I uh, was coming at this not as a, some, as a scholar with a long history of, of working on this subject. So I went to Iran as someone who uh, was born in Iran. I left Iran when I was one year old. And so I still have a passport and um, was able to just you know, go and uh, show up and kind of show up at the archives and, and start doing the research, uh, which, by the way, is not as difficult as you might think. I mean, the National Archives of Iran are very easily accessible to scholars. The one really challenging one was the Foreign Ministry Archives. And I'm working on an essay about that where, where I really tell the whole story of how that came about because that was a uh, quite a story. Um, the short version is it took an incredible amount of persistence because they were very, um, it's a difficult place to work. It's, it's not a place that really tries to make its archives accessible. There was a law in Iran that all government ministries have to deposit their archives periodically at the National Archives, but the Foreign Ministry and I believe the Defense Ministry are exempt from that rule. So the Foreign Ministry archives are separate and they're in a very, very difficult place to access. And I would just go day after day after day and just beg and plead for a little bit of access. And I ended up getting some access to documents before the 1920s. And yeah, they were really enlightening. Um, you know, and a lot of that is in the book. Um, we were chatting just before getting on the call. I think one of the big surprises had to do with the first Iranian uh, ambassador to, to Washington, Haj Hossein Ghali Khan, Nuri, uh, who was often referred to as Haji Washington, um, who I think is a terribly misunderstood figure, a figure of ridicule in Iran, but who actually I discovered, much to my surprise, did not get kicked out of the US in disgrace, did not leave throwing a tantrum or any of these other things that he's been accused of by history. But actually, I discovered his lease, his, the lease on his apartment in Washington, which was a nine-month contract. He left exactly when he was supposed to. He arrived and left. He left exactly one year after he left Iran. He was on a one-year contract. It takes two months to sail and to make its way your way over to the U.S. and two months to make your way back. Um, it was as simple as that, you know. And he was a great fan of the U.S. and he was a completely misunderstood figure in history. So I'll, I'll write more about that and, I'll, and I'm happy to talk more about that at some other point. Thank you. You mentioned the 2500th anniversary of, with the Persepolis celebrations and the documentary narrated by Orson Welles. Is there anything that can be said about how this event itself influenced subsequent anti-Western sentiment among not only the supporters of Khomeini, but other groups opposed to the Shah? Yeah, I think honestly a lot of that has been has been done. And I think there's a new book coming out as well. Um, by Peter Good, I hope, that, I hope I'm name checking him correctly, um, that I'm really looking forward to about the Persepolis uh, celebrations. Um, so again, not an expert in that area, but I think that, look, yes, obviously they were, I think, the beginning of the end in some ways for the Shah's regime. One of the most extreme examples of what was perceived as a certain kind of megalomania. And of course, Khomeini was very, very critical of that, but not just Khomeini, the left was very, very uh, critical of that. Uh, the Marxist and Maoist groups uh, that both Professor Milani and, and some of my other uh, colleagues and friends know much, much more about than I do. Um, uh, so yeah, I think that did have a very, uh, that did have a real, um, it was a turning point because the Iranians were kept away from that. They weren't allowed to participate. It was this, you know, kind of party in the desert, you know, uh, for foreign dignitaries. Um, Thank you. In the missionary archives, we see phrases such as Christ's kingdom in Persia, which points to the ideological objectives of what were, after all, American evangelists. Despite the fact that missionaries open schools and hospitals, much like USAID during the Cold War, how do you untangle the continuities between mentalities that, whether then or now, were based on the flawed assumption that Iran needed to change? 
That was a great question. And there is a fantastic scholar by the name of Matthew Shannon, who may be on this call. And if he's not, you know, um, should check out his work. He's working on his second book right now that is about exactly this, um, which is to say the sort of missionary impulse. Uh, and I've urged Matt to actually go back earlier in history uh, because he, I think, originally was looking at sort of early or sort of mid 20th century uh, period. Um, but I actually think, you know, if you're, if you're listening, Matt, you know, keep going back into the 19th century because I think it's super interesting stuff. Look, I think that there is a, a straight line um, between, look, I agree with you about the evangelical impulse. I happen to kind of like the American missionaries. I, I have to admit, I have a soft spot for them. I know that they are missionaries and that has a whole problematic kind of thing to it. But I do think that um, their, their impulses and their instincts were generally relatively noble. Um, they honestly believed in the bottom of their hearts in the 19th century that if they went to Iran, not to proselytize Muslims and Jews, but to proselytize their fellow Christians, their Assyrian, uh, Ashuri, you know, Armenian and uh, Chaldean counterparts, who they believed worshipped, uh, followed a kind of deformed version of Christianity, that if they could convert them to American style Presbyterian Christianity, and then uplift their condition with literacy and better health care and all the rest of it, that they would set such an example it's such like a city on a hill kind of mentality that they would set such an example for their fellow Muslim and Jewish uh, citizens that they would all then want to also convert to Presbyterian Christianity. It sounds crazy. And of course they didn't succeed. You know, to this day, the, there are a few hundred Presbyterian Christians in Iran that are descendants of people who have been converted by Americans. Um, but I think what did outlive or live, live, what, what sort of uh, lived beyond the, the, the century-long American missionary enterprise in Iran, which lasted from 1835 to 1935, was, a, was this kind of missionary impulse, a missionary mentality that very naturally elided into kind of American development theory of the, of the 1950s and 1960s, of going in and trying to, you know, uh, eradicate poverty and create reform and create, you know, a kind of more pro-Western, anti-Soviet kind of population and so on. And this is the stuff that Matt's working on in his book. And so I'm really looking forward to the conclusion that he draws, because in many cases, it's the same people. It's the same people. It's literally the same missionaries or, or sometimes their, their kids or their grandkids who then go off and become development theory experts and go off in kind of advisory missions to Iran. I mean, as late as the 1970s, you know, when you if you went to a US embassy function in Iran, a lot of the people there, a lot of the cabinet ministers, a lot of the people there, a lot of the advisors and so on, were people who had graduated from American missionary schools in the 1920s and 30s, from Alborz and places like that, right? Um, there, there's a, just a, a fascinating continuity from Justin Perkins in, the eight, in 1834, right up until the Islamic revolution in 1979. Thank you. Uh, one viewer says, do you agree with some scholars who say that Cyrus the Great's model of government influenced how Thomas Jefferson wrote the US constitution? And another viewer says, can you please explain to the audience your point about John Quincy Adams and Iran? Okay. I love that, that first part of that. That is such an Iranian question. I know that the person asking that question is Iranian because we're trying to take credit now for the US constitution. I love this. Um, not quite, so I appreciate the question. Um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say <laughs> that uh, Cyrus uh, the Great served as inspiration for the US constitution, but, but I don't mean to be overly kind of dismissive of the question because Jefferson loved Cyrus, it's true. He read, there's a book written by Xenophon, the Greek historian in the fourth century BC uh, called the Cyropedia which is just what it sounds like, a sort of biography of Cyrus. Very, very flattering. And, and of course, Herodotus was very flattering of Cyrus as well, the Persians as well. 
the Greeks really admired the Persians, you know, begrudging admiration you know, for their enemies. Um, and a lot of the enlightenment uh, thinkers of the late 18th century, including the founding fathers, Jefferson, Adams, et cetera, read the Cyropedia. We know that Jefferson owned two copies of the Cyropedia and he read them carefully enough that he actually noted in his handwriting in the margins, the differences between them. So we know that he read this book very carefully. And the Cyropedia was a sort of, there's this myth around Cyrus that I think persists well into today among a lot of Iranians. Um, maybe true, maybe not, I don't know. I'm not an ancient historian, but uh, this idea that he was a, this kind of benevolent despot that he uh, was one of this, this, he wrote the first Bill of Rights, that he, he really cared about the, the rights of minorities and religious minorities and all the rest of it. Um, it's not for me to assess any of that, but this mythology around Cyrus really inspired some of the founding fathers, yes, because they were creating this new republic. And they liked the idea of a powerful empire that absorbed people from all over the world and was tolerant and all the rest of it. That was very Jeffersonian, yes, 100%. So not the, I wouldn't say the constitution was inspired by this, but I think Jefferson did like this, did, was a big fan of Cyrus, so was Benjamin Franklin, we know that. And Adams as well. John uh, Quincy Adams was advised by his mother, Abigail Adams, to read the Cyropedia for advice on how to govern. So that's pretty interesting. Thank you. <clears throat> we have a few questions all along this vein, so I want to read a few of them out. What do you think the path forward is towards a less antagonistic relationship between these two countries, aside from the nuclear agreements? And another viewer writes, do you think it would help the relationship between the U.S. and Iran if the U.S. were to apologize for what they did to Iran in the past, getting rid of Mossadegh, support for the Shah, et cetera? Yeah, I'll take the first question first. Yes, but Iran also needs to apologize for the hostage crisis. Both countries have come very close to doing that. Madeleine Albright acknowledged and expressed regret in uh, March 17th, 2000, year 2000, uh, for the uh, coup d'etat against Mossadegh. Um, uh, others have acknowledged it uh, as well. Uh, Obama kind of uh, alluded to it. Um, and around the same time, Mohammad Khatemi, the Iranian president from 97 to 2005, in his first interview with Christian Amanpour on CNN in 1990, early 98, January 98, I think, uh, also acknowledged and expressed regret and, and said he understands why the American people were hurt by what happened with the hostage crisis and said that was a moment of revolutionary passion that would not happen again today. Neither of those were apologies. Um, I even asked Madeleine Albright this very question myself once uh, many years ago when she spoke here at Penn, uh, raised my hand and said, do you, you, know, you think you should apply? Um, you know, and I think you know, she gave a fair, a reasonable answer, which was, uh, you know, in the context of a larger conversation, yes. And that is the same answer I would give as well. I, I don't think just apologies out of nowhere are going to really help anything. Um, that's not really how, you know, how you do diplomacy. Uh, but the first part of the question is difficult for me to answer as a historian. I don't have any special wisdom on how they can advise, you know. I have always felt that the nuclear issue is kind of a distraction. It's a, you know, it's, an, it's a proxy for a larger, difficult political conversation that these two countries need to have. So I'm a big believer in just like cutting through the chase and having a summit meeting and just you know, putting everything on the table. I, I'm also realistic. I don't expect that to happen right now. Thank you. We have just a few minutes left and I know Professor Milani wanted to say a few words. So I'm gonna invite him to um, unmute himself and turn on his camera and then also Dr. Gazvinian at the end, if there's anything else you would like to add, please do. Uh, thank you very much. I wanted to uh, first of all, welcome our uh, wonderful guest uh, and congratulate him for the book. 
usually when we have these, uh, uh, when we used to have these uh, book talks, the, the book would be available, uh, Stanford uh, Bookstore would make it available. And part of our goal has always been to uh, let the Iranian community, let the scholarly community know about these wonderful books. Uh, the fact that my review has come out this weekend has nothing to do with the timing of this talk. The review was supposed to come out last uh, November when the book was initially scheduled to come out. Uh, and I strongly urge you to read it uh, because I think it is uh, uh, easily the most comprehensible, comprehensive uh, uh, account of this relationship. And although I disagree with some of the analysis uh, of the last 40 years, because I think uh, as uh, uh, Dr. Razminian himself repeatedly pointed to, I think part of the problem lies in Iran, particularly in Mr. Khamenei's virulent anti-Americanism that precedes his rise to uh, power and to the extraordinary amount of control that he has the likes of Khatami, the likes of the reformists, the likes of uh, Iranian moderate uh, middle class unconnected to the regime who want to rely on that cultural amity and that cultural comedy that existed are uh, blocked by uh, the desires of one man uh, who can dictate uh, and literally say, I have forbidden this relationship. Nevertheless, this is a remarkably readable book it's a remarkably informed book. The first third of the book is by far the best thing I have read on the early history of U.S.-Iran relations. Uh, I have uh, uh, asked him, uh, begged him to expand that uh, early part, and he has promised to write it. And once you read that history and you read the rest of it, you realize what a complicated story it is. And I congratulate him for writing such a a wonderful, readable, eloquent uh, text. I had meant to use it in my class, U.S.-Iran relations last quarter. And unfortunately, uh, the last minute the bookstore said, we can't order it on time. So next time I teach U.S.-Iran relations, we'll use it and invite him back to meet with our students. Thank you very much for uh, this wonderful, eloquent talk. I want to say a big thank you to you for those very kind words. And actually, I want to just also thank you again uh, for, as we were chatting a bit before coming on the call, but thank you for the, the time that you took to, to read the book and to read it with great care uh, and to sort of make these the critiques that you made, which I actually find very fair and very substantive and very interesting and, and gave me a lot to think about. Um, you know, Professor Milani is someone who, uh, you know, I, whose work I have read for many years and, and have learned a lot from, and especially your, your absolutely uh, fascinating, eloquent character studies in, in the Persians, in, in, uh, which uh, were very eminent Persians that were very helpful to me as I was doing some of the research on some of these figures. Um, it was interesting to read your, your review. And by the way, I have, so I have an advanced copy of it. It doesn't come out in the New York Times until Sunday. So we're talking about something that unfortunately you're all gonna have to just wait a couple of days for. But, you know, I was as I was reading it, I was reminded of how in many ways we feel the same way about each other's work. You know, we, I haven't always agreed with some of your conclusions, but I, I find your writing so eloquent and so moving and so um, uh, just, just very elegant. Uh, and I've always uh, you know, really appreciated the passion and, the, and the, the, um, the character that you put into the, the, the writing that you do. And so I, you know, in many ways, I, um, 
you know, it's a, it's a great compliment to hear the same from you. And, and actually in terms of some of the disagreements we have about the more recent history, I actually really look forward to hashing them out at some point. I know this is probably not, we run out of time now, but um, you know, I, I think you made some very, very good points uh, and actually, um, you know, uh, uh, they gave me a lot to think about. And, you know, really, I just want to say that um, it, it's an honor and a, a pleasure to be, to, to, to be reviewed by you and to, to hear your, uh, to hear your thoughts on the on the book it's uh you know it's and, and absolutely you my pleasure and congratulations again